Daniel chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion, and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth, and made to stand on two feet, like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear, it was raised up on one side, and had three ribs in its mouth, between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. I watched until thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garments was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The courts were seated, and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain, and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion, and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit, within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by, and asked him the truth of all this. So he told me, and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. 
But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured, broke in pieces, and trampled the residue of its feet. And the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn which came up, before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints, and prevailing against them, until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favour of the saints of the Most High. And the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall rise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, and times, and half a time. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion, to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven, shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. That passage we had read earlier, Daniel chapter 7. So Daniel has got 12 chapters, and the first six are very exciting narratives, gripping stories. The last six chapters are more puzzling, but they're no less inspired. They're put there for us. And so we're going to look at the first of those tonight, particularly looking at the first 14 chapters. Now the fact that we're looking at something difficult, we've got to realise at the beginning, it's meant to be difficult. God put things in the scriptures that are meant to be different. Now, why would he do that? Well, one answer is, we don't know. All sorts of reasons why God might do things, we don't know, because he's all wise. But we know he's got wise reasons, if we, even if we don't know the wise reasons. But also, we know that there's a principle in scripture. Those who seek, find. And so God has inspired the scriptures with rewards for those who seek. Yes, it's like an Easter egg hunt. You know, there's a reward for those who seek. It's the same in scripture. If you don't seek, you won't find. So there are things here we're going to have to work out. There's another principle to how to deal with difficult passages. Often people think the way I understand a difficult passage like this is to read all the history books and read all the newspapers. Before you do that, read the Bible. 
because the scriptures themselves have the very best clues for how to understand this. So when you're looking at a passage like this, I hope you notice the similarities between the four beasts coming up and what we read about earlier today when we were looking at Daniel chapter 2. So that's one passage that sheds light on it. But you also look at the book of Revelation, uh, where it's got beasts, and that will shed light on it too. But it begins in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. This is the first year of the reign of Belshazzar, and he didn't reign very long. He's the last king of Babylon. So whereas Nebuchadnezzar was the first king after they had their great empire, and he had the dream that fitted so much with this, this is the last king. And you know how in chapter 5 he was so arrogant that he even tried, drank out of the um, special vessels that came from the temple, and that's when the writing appeared on the wall, and that night his doom was pronounced the next day. He was uh, replaced, he was dead. And here we have Daniel having a dream. But it's unlike our dreams. I mean, I don't know about your dreams, but my dreams are pretty confused. They look like ramble all over the place. But this is not just any old dream. This is a vision. Notice again and again, it says, I saw, I saw, I saw. And behold, right like that, this is God giving him a vision. It's divine inspiration. It's orderly. And he writes it down straight afterwards for us. And what this dream does is it deals with four beasts coming up, according to verse 2, from the great sea. Well, if you looked at the phrase great sea in scripture, you'll know from the book of Numbers and the book of Joshua and the book of Ezekiel, all 12 times it occurs, always the Mediterranean. And some people say, well, these four kingdoms are all connected with the Mediterranean in some way. And that's true. But we know more about that, because we spend a lot of time down at sea, don't we? Beach missions began at the sea, didn't it, of course. And what do we think about the sea? This is the sea in a dream. The big sea in a dream. Well, we know that the sea is just amazing. I mean, people go for holidays at the sea because it's amazing, and because it absolutely licks all of those wave machines, those tame wave machines that have those swimming pools. It's just not the same as when you get to the sea, the real sea, the big sea, the great sea. And it's so wild, and so untamable, and so turbulent, and so vast. And when we read about the, script, uh, the sea in the scriptures, we read various things. Isaiah 57 verse 20. The wicked are like the tossing sea. It cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up mire and dirt. When you look at the sea and the disorderly nature of it, you have a picture of the way the wicked are. Revelation 17 and verse 15, the angel said to me, talking of Babylon, the great prostitute, sitting on waters, and this is of course Babylon here in Daniel, the waters that you saw when prostitutes seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. In other words, sometimes the scriptures give us the sea as a picture of the way people are, the way the world is in its disorderly rebellion against God. And out of this sea come these four beasts. Not four beasts, four great beasts. The first beast is a lion. Uh, like a lion. Uh, but it's also got wings. Wings like an eagle. Easy. I mean, so easy for, for Daniel. He, he could get that. 
you, you look around Babylon, they have so many of these lion beasts around their gates with great wings on you. You can see them in museums around the world today. Yes, that would be a great symbol for Babylon. And it fits really with the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had in chapter 2, when the very first thing, the head of gold, is said in that dream to be Nebuchadnezzar. That really fits. And of course, the lion is the king of the beasts, and you could argue that the eagle is the king of the birds. Such a great empire, and one that could move fast, like uh, an eagle's wings. But you've got to keep looking. The next beast we have is a bear, but it's a bear a bit lopsided. It's raised up on one side. People see in that the two-sided element of the very next empire, the Medes and the Persians. And they're not quite equal. The Persians are a bit bigger than the Medes. And it's got three ribs in its mouth. And some people say, well, I guess the Medes and the Persians, they beat up three empires, didn't they? They got uh, Egypt, they got Babylon, and they got uh, Lydia in Turkey as well. And maybe that's what's going on. But, you know, it's not quite as impressive. I mean, bear, lion, I, I think the lion's more impressive than the bear. Um, that, that's why it's the king, of the king of the beast. But then, keep looking. We're going to see another one. The next one is a leopard. Marginally faster than the bear, apparently. Uh, and, and, well, a lot faster than the bear. Marginally faster than the lion. I looked up, apparently lions can top 50 miles an hour. Leopards, 55. Pretty impressive. And the very next empire that comes along in world history is the Greek Empire, and everyone knows the story of Alexander the Great, and how he swept the world so fast. This beast also has four wings. That gives you double speed, doesn't it? Uh, just like double size of engine. So yeah, that would really fit. And after um, uh, Alexander the Great dies, his um, empire is divided into four. Uh, maybe that's what's going on with the four heads. But keep looking. Then we have another beast. And this beast isn't described as like a particular animal at all. In fact, it's different from the other beasts. What's described about it is just that it's different and that it's scarier than anything you've ever come across. And if, if it were to be described as a beast that you already know, the danger is you would think of it as something less. Just as we had with that vision in Daniel 2, gold, silver, bronze and iron, so we find that this beast has got iron, used for crushing its victims. And it's in climactic position. Everything is heading towards this vision of this great beast. The dream leads towards us. And then you get more detail. Keep looking at this beast. And you'll see ten horns, signs and symbols of power. But keep looking. And you see amid them a really small horn, a little horn. Not a big scary horn, a little one. Outwardly not impressive at first. And yet as Daniel's gaze is directed towards that horn, he sees other ones, three being displaced by it. He looks more carefully. He sees it full of eyes, like those of a human, able to take in so much information. He looks carefully. He sees its boasting. Well, what is this fourth empire? Who is this little horn? Well, those are questions we're not going to settle tonight. I'll give you a little uh, a, a take, take, take on that. <clears throat> the next empire, of course, after the Greeks, was the Romans. And it really fits with chapter 2 to think of this fourth um, uh, empire as the Romans. Because in chapter 2, you remember, in the days of the fourth king, or kingdom, along comes this stone that knocks the whole thing down. And of course, the kingdom of God was established by our Lord Jesus Christ in the time of the Roman Empire. 
And so in many ways, a lot of Christians would say this fourth empire is the Roman Empire. Uh, but Christians disagree about how we understand prophecy. And one of the great things about prophecy, and the word that comes up again and again in the Bible, is the word fulfill. Have you ever thought what a strange word that is, fulfill? It's like, it's, a word, it's the word is film twice, fulfill. Because a prophecy is one of those things that can just have be so rich in meaning, because what you find is so many script, uh, um, prophecies in Scripture can actually be true again and again and again and again because they are ways that God describes what's going on in the world. And so many of these things, the, the danger is, I can tell you that, that you know, these, these empires were things from long past, and you think, well, that's got nothing to say to me today because it was just about the long past. And I want to say it's got everything to say to us today because the principles we have here just repeat themselves again and again. We can find candidates for this horn from before the time of Christ and after the time of Christ. Many people who speak boastfully against the Lord. And yet I do think that the scripture tells us of a great, great oppression in the future, of a single future figure who will particularly oppose God. Down through history there have been people like that. Before the time of Christ there was a man called Antiochus Epiphanes who persecuted the Jews. There were Roman emperors, European kings, popes, many people who opposed Christ. 1 John and 2 John speak of the Antichrist. 2 Thessalonians 2 speaks of the man of lawlessness. And whatever we think of this fourth kingdom, the job of the fourth kingdom can still be continued today because so much of subsequent history flows from the Roman Empire. We think the Roman Empire fell about 400 and something. But actually, people in Europe were still talking about the Roman Empire, still being going uh, many years later than that. Even our alphabet today comes from Rome. 1 John 2 verse 18, Little children, it's the last hour, and as you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, even so many Antichrists have come, by which we know it's the last hour. The point is this, there are people who oppose Christ, there are people who oppose the Kingdom of God in every generation. And therefore, this is speaking for Christians who are being persecuted today, Christians who are being oppressed today. It's not just about the distant past or the distant future. What can we conclude from this? Well, first lesson. Empires come and empires go. They seem really scary at the time. They hold your complete attention just as your complete attention would be directed if there was a leopard in front of you right now, or a bear in front of you, or a lion in front of you, or something worse than them all. They completely grip your attention. You can't think about anything else. They're completely overwhelmingly scary. And they come, and they go. There are great empires in the world. They come and they go. They're very fierce, and they're very temporary. Second thing. That human rule is often more like a wild animal than a human. It doesn't matter whether we look at kings down history or military governments today or democratic governments today where the people seem to decide. Actually, what goes on is often more like a wild, savage animal than the sort of being you can have a rational conversation with. And therefore, we're not going to be surprised that there are wild things happening out there. If the local council, where we're trying to do a mission, it seems to be acting in a wild and completely irrational way, just like an animal might act, it's with instinct. 
we're not going to be surprised if sometimes people respond in animal-like ways to the gospel. We are not going to be surprised because actually scripture tells us that it can be like that. The best description when scripture looks out on history at the way these things work is like a beast. And also in this text it gets worse. The first beast at least is given a human heart and is able to stand up like a human. The next one told to devour much flesh. The fourth beast doesn't even devour the flesh. It also just breaks in pieces and tramples and wastes things. And things can get worse and worse. Well, that could be really depressing. But the great thing is, the climax is not the fourth beast. You've got to keep looking. And then you read this, verses 9 and 10. The dream continues, but at a completely new level. The first part of the dream was scary scenes on earth. Now we look in heaven. Thrones are set, and then is one described as the Ancient of Days. What's that mean? Well, it means an old person, but not any old, old person, and not described that way because of their, their decrepit. They're not decrepit. They are one who has lived through long ages. From the description we learn, he's none other than God himself. Seated on a throne, ruling everything. His clothing blazing. His hair white and dignified. What's his throne made of? Fire. And it's an awesome throne with wheels like a chariot. Just as God's throne in Ezekiel has wheels that can move every way. God's not stuck. And before his presence there are a thousand times thousand angels. There are ten thousand times ten thousand who are serving him. It is a court scene and books are opened. Perfect records of everything that ever happened in the entire history of the earth. God has total recall of everything, including every word of blasphemy by any of those beasts. Then his vision shifts back to earth again. Verse 11 and 12. He has had that glimpse of heaven. Now he sees that little horn. Boasting, even as God sits enthroned in heaven, surrounded by tens and tens and tens of thousands of those serving him, even as he records everything happening, that boasting's going on. Yeah, that boasting is a little horn. The little horn thinks it's really big, doesn't it? Hey, I'm so big, it boasts against God. God is sitting at that very moment in his mighty throne that can move anywhere with everyone serving him. And the little horn is boasting. Think about it. Those things on earth that boast and claim to be great, that we get so scared by, they are little horns. What is it that you're intimidated by? Uh, you know... Well, I get intimidated, you know, just talking to strangers. Intimidated, you know, what are they going to think? And we can get so scared. Look, even the greatest opponent of Christ described in the entire history of the earth is described as a little horn, mostly. What do we have to be afraid of? And here we, just, we see how this beast is slain, the body of destroying burns, and some of the other beasts continue for a while with their authority taken away. And then he lifts his eyes again and sees in heaven. 
I was watching in night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. This is verse 13. He came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. And then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. His kingdom, the one that will not be destroyed. The next one we described is described as the Son of Man. What Son of Man mean? Well, Son of Man simply means man, doesn't it? But this can't be a mere man, because how could any mere man approach God in all his glory and throw the Ancient of Days on his throne? This is not a mere man. This is the Son of Man coming with the clouds. Well, have you ever seen a human who can't summon the clouds? I'm just going to bring some clouds along now. It's not something we could do, is it? And what we read in Scripture about the clouds is this. Deuteronomy 33, verse 26. There's no one like the God of Yeshua, and that's, that's a name for uh, Israel, who rides the heavens to help you, and his excellency is on the clouds. 2 Samuel 22, verse 12. He made darkness canopies about him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. Psalm 68. Sing to the Lord, sing praises to his name, extol him who rides on the clouds. Psalm 97. Clouds and darkness surround him, righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. So here we have the description of a man who possesses the characteristics that only God has. Oh, you and I have read on into the New Testament. We know this is none other than Jesus Christ, whose favourite self-designation was the Son of Man. Not merely to give contrast to the Son of God, but every one of us is a son or a daughter of man. And it refers back to this passage. The Son of Man is brought before the Ancient of Days, and to him is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom, the one that will not be destroyed. I'm going to read some more words, which I guess will be familiar to you. I want you to see if you can see a connection with this passage. Matthew 28, verse 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Think about it. In one you have the vision where the Son of Man comes to his glorious Father, the Ancient of Days, on his throne, and receives authority that all of the nations should serve him. And his kingdom is one that's going to go on forever. And here we have in Matthew's Gospel, the Great Commission, he says, all authority has been given to me, go and make disciples of all the nations, and I am with you forever. Do you see the connection? That what the end of Matthew's Gospel is telling us is that this vital part of this vision in Daniel 7 has been fulfilled. The Son has received that authority. I think sometimes we're confused about the phrase coming of the Son of Man because it's used in more than one way. The Son of Man came to earth. That's why Jesus said the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. That's coming to earth the first time. But he also is coming again. He says to the high priest, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power 
and coming on the clouds of heaven. So there we've got him with the clouds, like in this passage, Daniel 7, but seated on his throne already. But think about a passage like this. Have you ever puzzled about Matthew 16, verse 28? Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Have you ever puzzled about that one? Out there prepared to admit they puzzled over that one. Go on. Um, some, some standing here will not take that until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Well, the danger is that every time we see the Son of Man coming, we think he's coming to earth. He comes to earth twice. Once to save, save us, second time to, um, to judge the world and bring things to conclusion. But here in Daniel 7, he's not coming to earth, he's coming to the Ancient of Days. So there is another coming, two comings to earth, but there's another coming described in the Bible, and that's the coming of the Son of Man to receive authority. And in Matthew's Gospel, we're told it does indeed happen before someone died, that he receives all authority. Look at the wild empires, the political systems, getting worse, but the Son of Man wins. He has all authority, it will not pass away. How? Well, think of the vision in Daniel 7. All those thousands times thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand, what are they doing? They're serving. So what on earth did Jesus mean by this? Matthew 20, verse 28. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for men. What it's telling us is that what you have in this vision in Daniel 7 is just a condensed form of what's going to be spread out in a bigger way. That it, you would look there and you'd think, well that's simple, he comes and he gets served. But no, what we learn as we read the New Testament is that before being served, he takes on the form of a servant. He goes to the cross and he wins the victory. And this is the great thing. We see that some of this vision is already fulfilled and that when we see the Great Commission that he sends out us to make disciples of all the nations, guess what? All the difficult stuff has already been done. Jesus went to the cross, he paid it all for us and he now has all authority. And so we are being called in to be involved in the last phase where all the difficult, costly things have been done by Christ himself. And we go out sent by the one who has all authority. The Son of Man serves. He gives his life as a ransom for many and then he is given all authority that all the nations should serve him. All the nations are going to serve him and our calling is to be involved in calling them to obey him now. After he's received all authority. Now just think about that. We are going out with the authority of the one who has all authority. Those things out there that might scare us as we're involved in our evangelism, uh, the opposition we might, uh, might, might see, is like a little horn boasting. It's nothing. The one on our side has all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus in the New Testament is described as just calming the waters. The troubled sea, the troubled nations, that's no difficulty for him. He is Lord of all. When we look out on the world, we see beasts, we see rising opposition to Christianity in this country. 
I wouldn't say persecution, I don't think it is persecution. We're not Iran or North Korea at the moment, but we see opposition. Street preaching and beach evangelism don't receive the same approval in many situations as perhaps they once did. But don't look out. Look up. Look up and let your eye of faith see Christ seated on his throne in all authority. And he is the one who sets us out. And what is our task? Well, we have to, the privilege of being involved in the fulfilment of this prophecy. The granting of authority has already occurred. Don't you know Christ has won the victory? And we can invite people to join the victory side. We're on the victory side. Bow the knee before Christ uh, and, uh, and obey everything that he's commanded before it is too late. Serve the one who came to serve. The fulfilment of this is absolutely certain. In our daily life, we are ambassadors of the King. Let us catch a vision of that as, as we think about how we are to live. Now sometimes we say today, don't we, when we want to support someone, you know, we're with you. We're with you all the way. You know, we're really going to be with you. The great thing about this is when we say we're with you all the way, often we mean we're not with you, we're just cheering from the sidelines. We're like, we're with you in spirit. When Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all, says, I am with you, he is actually with us. Because by his Holy Spirit, he is present with us. So think about that situation at school, at work, amongst our non-Christian friends. We may be terrified. I can be really terrified. I like to be liked. And so that means that I'm, I'm scared of, of, of getting people you know, people rejecting or, 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 or not liking the way I put things. And, you know, uh, I, I don't want to express myself in a way where people are, are going to think, oh, well, I mean, he's just so um, unreconstructed. I mean, really not with it. He hasn't realised that he's so intolerant and bigoted and all this sort of stuff. And I don't want to be rejected like that. And, and I get scared. But the one with all authority in heaven and on earth, who's king over all, has sent us out. There's nothing that anyone can think or say or do which can cause spiritual harm when you have Christ with you. Remember those waters, the peoples, the multitudes, the nations and the languages. And remember how in the chapter we did earlier today, it was calling all peoples, nations and languages to bow down before this great idol that had been put up. But the great news is this. All peoples, nations and languages will bow down before Jesus Christ who stills the seas. We have God on our side. There is nothing we have to fear. So let us ask for his help. Because without him we can do nothing. Remembering that he has done everything on the cross, that he has paid all of the price for our sins, that he has given us all of the guarantees, all of the promises, all of the knowledge that he is with us. Let us remember that. And let us pray that we would have strength, his strength alone. Because think how much his strength is. He said his strength is made perfect in weakness. And in his amazing conversation, God has chosen to use weak, vain, forgetful, people like us. People who find it really hard to concentrate on, on, on God. Who, who 
find our prayer life are, are, are just make us ashamed. And that we, we are so full of sin in ambition and lust and all sorts of ways. God has chosen to use us. You know, when Matthew was writing his gospel, there's something that if he was a real, you know, champion writer for some literary prize, he's got something wrong. Because he's like four verses before the end of the gospel, and it goes like this. Before the Great Commission, it says this. When they, the disciples, saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Some doubted. Matthew, you're just getting to the climax. You're four verses before the end. Why do you have to let the cat out of the bag and say some doubted? It's just so anticlimactic. The great thing is this. He got it right. It's perfect. Because in our doubt, in our weakness, in our frailty, that's exactly the people that God has called to go and make disciples of all the nations. The more we know each other, the more we are going to know uh, each other's weaknesses and others are going to go know of our weaknesses. Let's not be afraid of others knowing of our weaknesses. But let's just remember the strength that God has. Let's just pray. Lord, thank you for all of your goodness to us. And we thank you that Jesus will reign overall and that he has all authority. And we ask that we will just go out to tell people about him, confident of everything that he has, everything he's done, and how we will be with us in Christ's name. Amen.